back once again for this the 17th episode of the Startwell podcast. I am Startwell's founder, CEO Kasim Fergi, sitting here in the studio as always. Well, not always. I don't only sit in the studio. I go to other rooms at our campus on King Street in Toronto, regardless. Um, but we are back in the studio this time with a very interesting trio that call themselves Yenza 3. Um, I'll let them explain what you guys do and introduce yourselves. And uh, yeah, sure thing. roll call. So this is Anuj Rastogi. I am one of the three co-founders of Yenza 3. I'm Shweta Malhan, uh, part of Yenza 3. And I'm Martin Byrne, also part of Yenza 3. Uh, okay, so straight up, obviously the three is the three of you, is it? No? It's got, uh, there's sort of many, many layers to this. It's so yeah. Quadruple entendres. <laughs> yeah, totally quadruple entendres. We, we had already kind of settled on this name, Yenza, which actually uh, Martin came across. It's a Sulu word, of all things, um, to create something in such a way with a group of people that uh, ensures buy-in. So it's essentially the Sulu word for design thinking. And uh, as we started to think about, you know, what we wanted to be when we grew up, uh, three kind of just worked its way in because there's three of us, there's three different perspectives on looking mm -hmm. at the problem of learning and knowledge management in organizations, and it just sounded funky. Yeah, three is a magic number. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. yeah. absolutely. De la, for life, <laughs> for life, de la. <laughs> absolutely, man, they have tongues. Oh. I saw them at the beer festival a few years ago, and I was, did you say the beer festival? Yeah, the beer festival. De La Soul came to the beer festival in Toronto and played, wow. and it was it was wonderful. It was wonderful to go back and remember how great there was that period where there was like rap was going through this really philosophical. It was a great time. Place. It was a great time. Yeah. You know what's funny? It happens almost every time, and listeners, uh, you know, regular listeners of our podcast will agree with me on this. Hopefully, um, something about being in a studio makes people feel like it's a safe space and you can open up and we always get nostalgic every time that we're on the mic there's always some old man moment <laughs> let me tell you kids about rap in the day yeah. you don't know hip-hop drake call yourself a hip-hop artist mumble rap Come on. yes yeah so that's the enzo three um how did you guys come together to form? And we'll talk about the work that you do. But what's how did you meet? And how old is this firm? We're uh, almost a year and a half old at this point, right? But with uh, mm -hmm. a lot more experience behind it, of course. <laughs> so yeah, how did you come together? So we were fortunate to get together at Click. Click has been instrumental in bringing us together. Click Health. Click Health. Right. We were part of Click Learning Solutions at Click, and we just happened to get assigned to a really cool project mm -hmm. that was going on at Click, and that's where our adventure of working together as a dream team started. Dream team, look that's at that. right. It is a dream team, and uh, once we uh, we moved on from Click Learning Solutions, we said, "Why not continue this uh, amazing dream team adventure together?" And that's the beginning of Yanza 3. Um, I guess individually you each have, I'm sure, a whole career before this in uh, in marketing and creative and design services. Uh, what's the, are there commonalities in your experience or, or what are you individually adept at? So what, when we, maybe let's talk about what we actually focus on and kind of where we're coming from. Okay. So the problem uh, that we've decided to orient our skills around is around knowledge and learning within enterprise 
um, primarily. So all organizations in some way, shape or form have to train and educate their people on policies, on ways of working, on culture. But what's happened over the last few years in particular, a lot of the old mechanisms that we were using for learning, for knowledge management, um, are shifting. The way people learn has changed. So no one really wants to sit through three hours of like click next e-learning anymore to learn about something. If you want to learn about something, you'll just go straight to Google or YouTube, watch a video or like consume two or three minutes of content and then you'll go about your day. Right, right. So the way that people are learning is changing. The platforms and technology stacks that organizations have are changing. So the old way of using learning management systems, many of those systems are already kind of going the way of the dinosaur. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's new platforms that are much more dare I say, sort of web 2.0, like modern user-centric platforms sure. that organizations have at their disposal. And the so the learner is changing, the technology is changing, and in the context of all that change is a whole bunch of uncertainty. So when organizations are trying to make a, a call on where do we make our investments, they're not really sure where to begin because putting a new piece of technology alone doesn't solve all the problems. You need to think about who your end user is. You need to think about the content strategy. Um, you also need to think about the operationalization and marketing of that learning offering. So we come from three related but different worlds, but we've oriented our skills around this particular problem. Okay. Like my background is purely in the learning space. I've been um, doing work in the learning and development space since the year 2000. Which and means tools for, for um, disseminating knowledge or actually focusing on how people learn? Uh, it started by creating products that people would con consume to uh, enhance their learning experience. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then it just got into this domain and space of, we've done enough work to, let's say, even move from classroom space to a digital space when it comes to learning. But since the year 2000, the pendulum has swung too far. People mm. have been just focusing on how to product, create a product around learning, okay. whether it's internally in, in an organization or um, uh, learning as a business. But there hasn't been as much focus on how the brain and mind works. Right. And how do we create learning that's conducive to actually uh, f uh, opening up the, the consumer's mind to first learn rather than uh, purely focusing on creating the product. Okay. Mm -hmm. So wait, uh, you were history, Shweta, is, is the, uh, before this, it was in learning as applied to customers, and customers, not internal teams at enterprise? Both. Oh, so both. Okay, I, okay. my experience is not in K-12 or higher education. Yeah. So I was always doing corporate learning in yeah. some shape, form, or fashion, okay. whether it was sitting in a business unit in a, in a corporate environment or in an HR function in corporate right. environment, or even as a vendor who would, create products when somebody from a company would come knocking on the door saying, sure. hey, can you build a sales training program for yeah. me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, <clears throat> um, my background has been in technology, digital technology and digital experience since 1991 when I built for my first website. Right. And, that, uh, and it's funny because- What know, year was this? Right? 1991. 1991. 91. Your first so, website. Yeah, well, the uh, yeah, myself and a few other kids from literally kids like from high school, we started a little web shops building web pages for bands. Um, Wait, sorry, 
let's just what year was that again 1991 <laughs> see i had well, to ask three times so i asked twice he said it three times yeah mozilla had just basically become a or mosaic had just become a browser yeah html was still not ratified by no. the w3 yet um the the image tag was a new thing which it was changing that whole world. this was before people, gift porn this was before all of it yeah and it was <laughs> but it was interesting because the first people who took it up the first people we got interest from uh one of the group had a relationship with a band and they said they wanted one of these web pages and so we said oh i guess we'll make one for a hundred bucks and so we started off and then after a few months we got this call from one of the bands saying hey our label would like to meet you uh and we're like well who's, who's the label and they said it's warner music canada so four teenagers put on the best clothes we've got and you know how teenagers have the worst Formal clothes. The right? worst, best clothes. Yeah, yeah, basically, it was our funeral clothes, right? And we go to <laughs> like, suit with lapels that reach the outside <laughs> of your shoulders. Three sizes too wrong, and we show up at, at Warner Music, and we're like trying to explain. How old were you? We're nineteen, and and we're walking, and there's marketing executives from Warner Music, and they said, "We want, we hear about these web pages," and uh, we're like, "Yeah, they're they're cool." Uh, people look at them right we had no no pitch they're like and they paused and said okay could you guys do one for us I'm like yeah and, and they said how much is it we're like we don't know and they said well how about ten thousand dollars and we all looked at each other like someone just put a bag of gold on the table of course like what who would pay ten thousand dollars for one of these right and so it began right like that's uh that was like the the wilder days so that's where i started and you know I've always lived in kind of one foot on either side, the experience side and the technology side, because yeah. they, they've gone together. So and I've just, you know, built and or run websites and web businesses ever since. So where we ended up coming together in, in, the, in, the, in the problem that we're seeing in, in learning specifically, uh, people who are coming from a learning background haven't had the same luxury of access to forward thinking and progressive technologies and to ways of buying and procuring those technologies. Mm -hmm. So marketing's always been kind of at the forefront in enterprise. They know how to use uh, data and analytics to constantly measure a campaign and then go about optimizing that. They understand that there's all these platforms that have been, been built around, you know, CRM, social media campaign campaigns. And so there's an entire industry oriented around marketing. Right. But in the learning world, a lot of these systems are now old. Right. They've got old ways of working. So people within that function haven't necessarily been as exposed to buying new technology. Right. And so they buy what might be new technology, but it's actually already 10 years old in terms of the way that it works. And the relationships with IT have been at points not perhaps as strong as it could be. So IT is not necessarily helping HR in all cases find the right technology for its needs. And IT doesn't actually understand the world of learning. So they go out and they look at systems, but they don't understand the end user. They don't understand sure. the stakeholder. And so they can't even necessarily outfit the business with what they need. Meanwhile, marketing and learning are actually doing the same thing. Your, your chief marketing officer is trying to get people out there in the market thinking about their product or service, um, going from awareness uh, or from being unaware to aware and then actually considering it doing something with the information at each stage so that they either buy mm -hmm. or tell a friend or what have you. So they're already doing the same things that learning is doing, which is I'm giving you this piece of information with the intent to help you change your behavior mm -hmm. to do something, right. either to get better at something or to learn our, our policy or whatnot. So they're 
essentially doing the same thing in two different audiences, but they're not talking to each other. Right. So we said to ourselves, what if you had your chief technology officer, your chief learning officer, and your chief marketing officer all at the table speaking a common language with you around this problem or opportunity around learning? So I, we've basically taken very different histories and skill sets and oriented them here, mm-hmm. which has been amazing because when we have these conversations with people, they're like, you speak our language, but you speak their language, and now we're speaking the same language, and all of a sudden things change. Of course. Um, so we've been able to really create a great dynamic with our clients as a result, and it's, um, I mean, the market needs this, so mm-hmm. here we are. Mm-hmm. And the learning da- domain specifically, because if you look at where learning is coming uh, from the, its origin, especially in the corporate space, it's coming from the military. So the approach towards learning was how do we create structure and consistency? Hmm. And the mindset was that once we create structure, consistency, and a product around learning, we can push and the people are ready to, they're hungry to lap up Man. the learning solution. But the reality is not like that. Yeah. But, it, but since I think last five to 10 years ago, the mindset for even CLOs and people uh, leaders in the learning space was like, just pump out volume. Let's mm-hmm. just push content at people and package it either as a face-to-face solution or a digital solution or even a blend of both. Mm-hmm. But nobody was looking at it from the lens of a customer. That's where marketing mm-hmm. plays uh, a huge role and technology is now conducive to address the user's needs or sure. customer's needs. So we sure. can create learning products very differently now. Mm-hmm. And the fundamental challenge is, has been around forever, right? Organizations of any kind, any organization of people, their biggest challenge, the the underpinning of its very survival has been the ability to make sure, uh, be confident as to the right person knows the right thing at the right time, whether it is a village passing down agricultural knowledge from one generation to the next, mm-hmm. or a CEO addressing board of directors. What's changed for enterprise, though, in the last little while is that because the speed of industry now, and, uh, and organizations used to be able to tolerate a certain level of ignorance in an organization. You could have, there's Bob, and Bob's job is to process Form 32. And Bob didn't need to know anything else no. except how to process stamp, Form 32. Stamp, pass. And you could have a pile of Bobs in an organization, and it was viable. But now you can't afford to have people in your organization that not only are not informed, but you can't quickly reinform and move them and change them around. Like you hear a lot of people talk about agility and pivoting and moving, but if you don't have the mechanisms, if you don't have the anatomy to enable them, and the enablement is, starts with knowledge, you're not going to pivot. You're not right. going to change. You're not going to adapt because that's where knowing is where it starts. Mm-hmm. I'm going to avoid saying knowing is half the battle, but actually, when it comes to innovation, that is the truth. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about culture. How does culture, corporate culture? Um, come into your purview. I, I mean, I, it's a, I'm leading the question a little bit, mm-hmm. and then I'll talk about you know my experiences working at this big blue elephant <laughs> of a company, but which I think is an interesting kind of tentpole in the enterprise world. But mm-hmm. you know, and shit show, complete shit show. <laughs> <laughs> Can we say shit show? Why not? Shit show. Are you gonna beat this out? No. Shit show. In fact, shit it's, show. Only, it's only a matter of time before that's the name of one of their new products. Shit show. <laughs> the box. Shit show the box. It's on-prem. <laughs> It'll do everything you need. And it updates automatically. Over USB. Yeah, over USB. Yeah. Thumb drives. Absolutely. You, you get a set of 500 of them every month in the mail. Um, but no, so yeah, culture is the So question. it's funny you mentioned culture because we've got three pillars. It, culture, capability, and technology. 
Yeah. Right. Those are the really three pillars because uh, we kind of orient ourselves a level up from learning. Learning is just one subset of knowledge. So backing up on knowledge, most teams, organizations, groups of people, at the end of the day, the one thing that usually holds them back mm -hmm. is a gap in knowledge. So if you work in a company of 10 people and you're the only one that does that particular function and now you win the lottery and you leave, yeah. that organization slows down because of the knowledge gap. It doesn't right. it doesn't know what you know to do your job to keep the organization running. Right. Meanwhile, you might be in a meeting and it could be a $5,000 meeting because you've got all these executives around the room and now a question's posed and they don't have the right answer available to them to make a decision. Again, there's a knowledge gap that's holding things back. Right. So there's always this knowledge gap, but in order to close that, you need to have both you need to have culture, capability, and technology all in alignment. Cultures, and personally, I think one of the biggest parts of that, because if you don't have an organization or team or group of people that's big on sharing right. and valuing knowledge and disseminating that knowledge and sort of treating it in the same way that you would treat any other asset in the organization, right. then it just kind of falls to the wayside. But yeah, if you have... You could promote the culture of yeah. learning within an organization to be able to, I would assume you know, make any tool that you roll out, no matter mm -hmm. how beautiful and, and interactive it is, yeah. uh, want to be used. Absolutely. And I think culture and um, actually knowledge and learning go hand in hand because um, learning is technically when somebody has changed their behavior. Mm -hmm. And with behavior change, you acquire abilities and you upskill yourself. So if the culture is not conducive, there's the right knowledge and you've pumped enough learning content into the ecosystem, but there's no desire because you might be saying that we promote risk-taking, but mm -hmm. every time somebody wants to try out something new, that's when people learn the most, when they're trying to do something differently, mm -hmm. and uh, you you get a stick, there is going to be no, your brain is not ready to learn right. and experiment. So right. that's where culture kicks in. You have sure. to have the environment conducive to support learning and behavior change so that people can continuously pivot and reskill themselves. Which itself is a reframing of, I think, the concept of innovation, right? Encouraging a culture of in integration really is reliant on people's want to, or ability, I should say, to pivot thinking, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. workshop soundboard mm -hmm. things and not be stuck in bias and mm -hmm. so on. And what's fascinating is that this is a huge blind spot for enterprise when you think about it. Like the, the, the granularity to which an enterprise can dissect its supply chain flow or its enterprise infrastructures or things like that is, is shocking. Yet when you ask an organization, how much do you know about the collective intelligence of your organization? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it strong? Is it agile? They have no idea. Yeah, and or when you think about or it, Bob's that, home life, you know. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and all the factors that influence them, like you know, you know, it's interesting. You you watch in sports, uh, and we were talking about this the other day, like a a, a sports or a professional sports organization, a, a basketball team, baseball team, football team, couldn't imagine not having super granular statistics on the performance of an individual. And not just they're like they're uh, they're quantifiable, but also like observations, like oh they're injured, so they're you know they're taking some time to recoup. They've had a uh, you know a slow patch. We in no level actually look at the human KPIs. We, there are tools out there that are kind of like, like performance factors mm -hmm. and some of these performance management tools, but they really are superficial. And right. when you think about yeah. the most expensive asset most every organization has in their organization is people. Hundred percent. And yet we as an organization culturally spend so little time looking and under looking at and understanding them. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the core the, the fuel that enables them is their knowledge. 
Um, and if you don't, if you can't measure that, if you can't see that, then how do you know anything else you invest in in your organization is worthwhile the investment? What's the point of buying new computers for people who don't want to use them or new redesigning your uh, your startup style community neighborhood workspace? Yeah. Putting in a slide. Yeah. And yeah. Shout out to Chorus Entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's actually a good example because you see uh, some particularly here, uh, big banks, you know, will go and take a huge lease on some gutted old warehouse building and try and create a startup vibe. And we'll put a bunch of open workspaces and coffee and donuts and cookies and a foosball table. Because when they walk into startups, mm -hmm. they see this stuff. And yeah. okay, we're going to take this physical uh, observation of startup and we're going to put it into our space. And now it'll be hot and happening. Right. But it doesn't work that way because there's not a culture around being... Um, Everyone says we want to be innovative until someone innovates something and then you slap them on the wrist, right? Mm -hmm. And so that, that culture isn't just foosball tables and, no. um, you know, open workspaces. There's something more than that that's happening in startups that generates those types of ideas and innovations. Yeah. So you as an organization can't say, I want this, and then when you see it, like, slap it down like a game of whack-a-mole. No. Mm -hmm. Here at Startwell, we've <clears throat> evolved a bunch of tools uh, and methods to enable our teams that work here to uh, be agile, uh, reduce friction in their relationships, in their sense of belonging to each other uh, and their co common mission, mm. uh, and done it in a way that, you know, and that's subject for perhaps another session, but um, and we can bring in a company to actually workshop this or explain this, but we've, we've really looked, or I've really looked at how uh, to reduce friction in early stage ventures um, process uh, and the everyday experience of these teams and that's some of the magic to enabling that startup mentality because even in startups it's wonderful for enterprise to look down the chain to say oh we can we can up chain you know innovation and we can look and learn to whatever depth the monocle is applied you know uh, did you just say monocle I did <laughs> monocle Okay, there we go. <laughs> For those viewers who are too young to know, it's half of a pair of eyeglasses. If you happen to be eating, uh, like, from a jar of planters peanuts right now, you, you know. Yeah, you look know at the now. label. Yeah, look, look at the label. At the label. All right. Or playing Monopoly. All right, sorry, continue. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yes, I'm, For those of you who have never seen a picture of me, <sighs> I'm very dusty. No, I'm not that old. Um, I just speak like I am. But the, no matter how you know, enterprise kind of looks down the pipe for where they can learn from uh, companies that rely on a fast pace of innovation, um, it's really interesting to us here at Startwell to say um, those are not codified things. And uh, those are not, the lessons have to be provided within the context of whoever's trying to learn them. Um, and so even here, we're seeing, you know, it's not even an industry specificity thing, but we have so many different companies doing so many different things, all with needs to grow and different means to grow mm -hmm. in terms of whatever their resources are from the early stage staff uh, who all individually have different motivations or wants to see that company succeed to provide them with value in their life um, to you know, monetary motivations and capital restrictions on the ability to grow at the rate which even customers are demanding of these companies. There's just so much at play in that mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, uh, embryonic stage of, yeah. of venture. Um, 
but yes, on the flip side, uh, to take a page out of my history, you know, with working for a monolithic global 400,000 person company um, in technology who thinks or culturally has been indoctrinated themselves for decades to believe that they are technology and innovation, mm-hmm. um, there is this kind of baked in cultural bias mm-hmm. to assume that any interaction uh, enacted from the company to any other person as a partner, whether it's a startup or otherwise, is one of uh, patronage. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I find fascinating because mm-hmm. the biases of that mentality um, necessarily limit the potential uh, to learn mm-hmm. and interact mm-hmm. and take yeah. lessons that help mm-hmm. innovation. Well, if we take Startwell as an example, because I mean, I've known you for almost 15 years at this yeah. point, right? Yeah. If you think about the culture that you've created here, so yeah, you have open workspaces and you have, I don't know if you have a foosball table, but like There's this a feels... a foosball table that no one uses, so we just fold it up, it's in the corner of the room. <laughs> Amazing. So, I mean, you've got... you've They're got too busy. You've, you've got that vibe here in this space that, you know, you've created with, with your team. Yeah. So physically, someone would walk in here and say, yeah, okay, I get that. But behind that is your entire history of being an entrepreneur in digital, in community, in open source. Right. Um, so you've already kind of been living and breathing that and you're able to kind of bring that here. Someone coming from a Fortune 500 old school uh, tech or other giant Mm -hmm. trying to start this up without your background Mm. wouldn't necessarily understand the pulse of this. Right. And what you're creating here is interesting because although we're focused on enterprise, the world is changing so much in terms of, you know, it's a cliched term saying the the gig economy, Mm -hmm. but many of the people that are here are probably doing a number of different things. They might have multiple side hustles at a time. They're in the middle of a startup. They're working for some small organization or a satellite office or something here. The way that we work with each other, the way that we generate income for ourselves, all that's changing. So in any one day, you might have to do, you're not Bob, you know, stamping for 32. You might be doing 10 different things. And so the rate at which we have to learn every day is increasing like crazy. Right. So the people that actually take that learning into their own hands are the ones that are successful. Right. The organizations that don't understand that. that you need yeah. to have multiple ways to help people learn, mm-hmm. um, they're the ones that are going to fall behind because this industrialized factory farming um, form of education, which got us to where we're at, yeah. you know, th- past World War Two and you know, sort of in this latest economy. It worked up until a point, but right. it's not working anymore. It's not working in K to 12. It's not working in enterprise. So we have to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this also speaks to unboxing of the learning experience, because typically what traditionally we saw learning as was a boxed experience, mm-hmm. whether it's a textbook or an e-learning course or right. going to one Which technology. Which is linear narrative, even if it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. provided right. digitally to you. That's right. So there's a lot of research that has happened in the learning space to speak to um, social aspects of learning, peer-to-peer right. learning, informal yes, learning. absolutely. And organizations typically haven't been able to capture that sense mm. effectively. There's power dynamics at play, though. You know, like w- one of the things that we're doing with our member companies, which is very interesting, is we have a one-year cycle of this. It's a once-a-month meeting of minds. Uh, we curate the groups. Typically, there are five people. Come hell or high water, they have to dial in or be in the same room, ideally, with each other once a month. The schedule's preset. We facilitate the first meeting. Mm -hmm. And then for 11 more sessions, they meet, they sign NDAs, and they have to just openly discuss 
whatever is on their mind, mm -hmm. but it's a peer group so they can learn from each other and they don't fear uh, the penalty of expressing themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and something like that, you know, is, a, is such a wonderful thing. Uh, it's a tool that so we've been talking to some of our uh, potential partners and part existing partners that are more enterprise, like banking, financial sector, whatever people saying, this would be amazing if we incubated this as a culture at our company. I'm like, but what happens when it becomes just throwing stones mm -hmm. because it's too, too nuclear a group? Yeah. So there's so many things that like, there's tools that we could develop um, I think for people to feel empowered to be able to express themselves, but it's a massive cultural problem to mm -hmm. um, to try and affect change in enabling that mentality. Like the water cooler shouldn't be a water cooler; it should be five thousand places where people can, mm -hmm. you know, meet, grow, learn, and take their work <clears throat> off-site. It's not limited to a building, mm -hmm. and you know, and all this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're right. I mean, the, the I think one of the problems. <laughs> Uh, around the kind of um, cult of leadership startup training is that leadership has been treated so much as a process and a skill set as opposed to a state of mind. Mm -hmm. And like any state of mind, mm -hmm. you've got to get into it. you got to be brought into it uh, through mentoring, exampling. Because the reality is, is it all starts with the leadership. Um, the leadership has to be learning-minded. Mm -hmm. It has to be organic-minded. It has to be flat organization-minded. Um, there was, a, I remember watching, I, I met a young startup, the late nineties called I Love Rewards, kind of Toronto mm, legend, right, became yeah, achievers, started, oh, yeah. I met them when they were like 20 people. That's uh, Razor Suleiman's thing. Razor, Razor Suleiman's yeah. exit. And it was a, a billion dollar exit. So it was a Canadian unicorn exit. From day one, they, nine o'clock, they did a startup, leadership was there or stand up and they, all of them would get in and it was a physical circle. They would share. It was tribal. They continued that up into the hundreds of employees. And then even then, they tried to figure out from leadership level, how do they participate? Mm -hmm. But that started with the leadership being in a leadership mindset, like a, a, a spiritual space of like, how am I going to be a guide? How am I going to be responsible? How am I going to be accountable? How am I going to listen yeah. to this collection? Because one of the things I think is lost by a lot of organizations, especially when they scale, is the realization that, you know, the difference between the competitive advantage a larger organization has is it has a collective brain. The problem is, as, as organizations scale, the leaderships forget to use mm -hmm. that collective brain. They silo it. They cut it up into little pieces and put it into little pigeonholes. Mm -hmm. The power of it, and this is where you see like organizations, even still you can say this about organizations like Google and even Facebook, the reason they can still move the way they do is because they don't silo brains as quickly. They don't silo knowledge because the leadership sees knowledge and organ mm -hmm. cultural knowledge is a holistic tool not a toolbox of little individual pieces you use to put out fires when you need to um, but it does come back to leadership mm -hmm. <clears throat> i mean with with google facebook twitter you know anyone that's uh been born and grown in the the modern sort of digital economy i think they already were kind of living that so it seems like a natural mm -hmm. evolution but if you're coming from you know a 200 year old you know, global mm -hmm. enterprise that started, you know, in the pre-war era and rose out of very military style leadership principles and functions and whatnot, that cultural transition, it has to be more than just window dressing yeah, where you, you hand out ice cream on Fridays and stuff. Right. <laughs> and so, but, but it's more than, and, and see, this is where, again, we're, we're, we're coming together. 
we kind of focus on learning, but learning is about more than just the content and the lesson mm-hmm. and the, the curriculum and the learning objectives and stuff. Like if you're if your people don't actually believe they're gonna get any value out of spending the time learning this thing mm-hmm. um, in some way, then they're just not gonna be bought in. So we also have to think about when you're trying to get people in your organization to learn to move forward what are you doing to actually resonate with them, right? What are you making, uh, what are you doing to make this sound like there's something in it for them? Of course. You couldn't sell a product and say, you must buy this product mm-hmm. because it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Like you'd have to find some way to resonate with the individual, right? Like Unless you, it's crack or something. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, even there's a very clear value proposition, right? Like that, like crack has kind of had its, it's had its day, it's figured it out, yeah, right? You know, you know what you're signing up for. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the Cancun of the mind, really. It's a quick, you know, escape and then back. You know what? They should. Pa- the Cancun problem with crack. Of the mind. <laughs> See, that's the problem. Cracks just had bad marketing. Oh my god, Cancun! I was just in Cancun last month, and normally I'd go to Tulum, you know, and and like a little quiet yoga place or something. But uh, we were late booking this holiday. It was a last minute thing, and we we're like, okay, let's just go to Cancun. The flights were quick, and we got some sort of deal at the hotel, and. Um, and I'd never been to, like, that party area. Like, Cancun is a place where young, <laughs> young people go to, like, let, l- cut loose, you know? And, and then one afternoon, we were like, uh, my wife and I were like, let's go and get some souvenirs, you know? Because it's got to be, like, a town, you know, this Cancun place. It's got to be a town there. And uh, we stayed away from it until the last day. And then we go down there, and, and we caught a bus. It was fun. Rode the bus down to Cancun, and it was the daytime. And I think that was our big mistake. It looks so scary and sad. You know, like when black paint turns gray in the sun Mm -hmm. and there's a sort of nostalgia and fear that's, you know, that it evokes that. But that that for me was what I felt when I saw um, the cages for dancers at nightclubs on the street um, fading in the sun. Before we quickly grabbed a couple t-shirts and ran back to our hotel. <laughs> Cancun of the mind. You know, is that the phrase? It, it comes on quickly. It's super exciting. Yeah, afterwards, you feel really gross, kind of sad, but weirdly, just, you want to do it again. Just yeah. don't go outside in the day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, keep it at night. Yeah, it's, it's like seeing New Orleans in the morning, right? It's like, oh, oh, yeah, no, I'm just gonna go have a, some a beignet. So tell me about the last year and a half, guys. What's what's been going on for you as a? Would you call yourselves an agency? No. Uh, no. Do you call yourselves. We're aside from Yenza Three. Well, aside from Yenza Three, no, we're so we're a professional services consulting organization okay. focused on enterprise learning technology strategy. Yeah. Uh, we also have development capabilities um, to do custom tools, create uh, custom, custom tools, yeah. custom content. Oh, even um, content. Okay. Yeah, and we're also very big mm. on. Uh, like we've talked a lot about this philosophy about being boundaryless. Mm-hmm. So until uh, until and unless it makes a lot of sense to have, uh, you know, uh, commitments to leases and office space and whatnot, if we're not where our clients are, then we're not really doing our best work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So being in the client's environment, understanding the dynamics and politics within their environment is actually really helpful. So we're boundaryless in that sense. Now we've got, you know, clients between Canada, the U.S., Australia and whatnot. And we live in a great time where we can do all of that. Yeah, fly around, mm-hmm. you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, actually, I got a question for you because mm-hmm. you've got a lot of organizations that kind of come through here, and there's a yeah, we have over a hundred member organizations. Right. Like, are you yeah. seeing it, that change? Like, is it is it just the minority community that are building kind of these fluid organizations, or do you feel, given the spectrum of organizations you're seeing, this is a thing? Like, this is the future. Like, it, 
The answer for me is loaded because it's intertwined, at least in my brain, with something that I've been trying to teach a lot of the early stage companies we're mentoring is that market opportunity exists globally. And as Canadians, specifically in downtown Toronto, we have a huge opportunity to not only test foreign markets with local populations that represent those markets, but be able to access them via, well, mm -hmm. I mean, similarly cultural links, whether you're hiring people that have access to those foreign markets or otherwise. I think the opportunity is there. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like there is still, it's changing very quickly, but there is still a kind of um, this Canadian uh, overly polite uh, kind mm -hmm. of thing where it's like, yes, we know we're great, but we don't want to shove it in someone's face. Yeah. And literally, I mean, it's a weird thing to say, uh, but as a mentor, investor, and kind of incubator that helps companies grow, we see this as a real sticking point for a lot of companies. We want to help them, and we're kind of like, you need to develop your internal capacity to welcome uh, the world, and not only just welcome it, but chase opportunity. If an opportunity mm -hmm. comes to you from a foreign country, don't dismiss it because it feels difficult to, um, mm -hmm. to you know, to jump on. And and of course, it's a necessity I think for these modern businesses that are um, digital, particularly. Uh, because of the nature of the geography of this country. Like, mm -hmm. we live in this wonderful kind of city, massive, I don't know, city country uh, of the greater Toronto area uh, with many highways and such and people everywhere. But, you know, as you travel across the country, there's only a few kind of tier one cities in Canada where mm -hmm. you can find um, enough of a market uh, for, let's call it like SaaS products. You know, small business focused SaaS products, which are some of our custom our, our our member companies are providing. So you necessarily have to sell globally. Now, a little anecdote on this from my own again history, which was really really interesting, is that the how this um, the cultural dogmas hold people back from realizing global opportunity uh, in North America. Uh, how pervasive that that phenomenon is 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 not some it's not an undernote i think or a subnote in the story i think it's like a huge point uh, i've seen it personally when before i was at ibm i was at softlayer which was uh, a cloud infrastructure company based out of texas that ibm then acquired to create its cloud offering because it didn't really have a real one mm -hmm. um but softlayers how they even got on the chopping block to be acquired was they built this kind of 400 million dollar annualized revenue business which is great in cloud at the time when there was Rackspace, Softlayer, mm -hmm. and Amazon mm -hmm. had now come out of nowhere and was taking over, right? Um, and the opportunity for this company was maximized within the U.S. They had pretty much rolled out as many data centers as they could manage in the States for the American demand. And now global demand was coming on strong. They needed to be in Japan. They needed to figure out what their plan with China is, you mm -hmm. know, which takes so much effort to figure out just because the demand was coming from the globe and the customer base, no matter what country a company is based in, the customer base for them and for their services was necessarily global. People needed quicker access to their data in a data center that was not in Canada, even if it's a Canadian company mm -hmm. or an American company in America. They needed a data center in Morocco, you know, because mm -hmm. their African business uh, wanted faster load times of their web pages. Right. So it was really interesting to see then that um, the founding team of that company, now there's some infighting and other dramas, but they literally, they were shit kicking Toronto, uh, not Torontonians, uh, Texans. They didn't want to get on a plane 
to go to Africa, they literally did not want to. They were like, I don't see why I have to. And that was the stumbling block that limited the growth of that company to go into the billions of dollars of revenue. Mm -hmm. And IBM picked it up for a song because of that. It's really interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, um, BetaKit, which is a great startup blog here, here in Canada. Shout out Douglas and BetaKit. Great guys. They're yeah, residents they're here. And the, oh. they're all of the BetaKit podcast, the CanCon podcast, etc., is actually produced in this very room. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, yesterday they just posted an article where they, because uh, PwC just dropped their Learn Money Tree report where they were talking about the um, uh, investments in uh, seed and early stage um, startups is up 30% over 2017. But in, in the Canada. Same, in Canada. Uh, but then, but they cite the fact that the uh, mid-stage and late-stage funding, where Canadian businesses are way behind. It's right. like we're great at startups, but you're right. Then we stall. And this article's have been all about like the, a lot of the reasons, and part of it is cultural. Right. That Canadian, we've become a great startup culture, but we're not a great kick it out, kick it out into the world culture. And <clears throat> and part of that, yeah. you know, is you know, I don't know if organizations. Are have enough mentoring, guidance, um, examples like this mm -hmm. of um, how to be fluid, like how to not anchor themselves down because it's almost like there's this expectation. It's like success in Canada sometimes seems like getting an office, locking it down, filling it with people, having a receptionist. So there's kind of these old notions. Mm -hmm. And I have sometimes feel that some of the companies I know are so preoccupied by uh, achieving the optics of scale as opposed to actually chasing the opportunity of scale. Yeah. You know, yeah. Sorry. Jump in there. Cause you had yeah, I, I think that there's, there, that is a uniquely Canadian thing. It just, I think because we, we see ourselves as this very large in area, but small in population country. That's you kind of like the, the kid brother that no one really thinks about. Yeah. Um, even though there's so much opportunity here and there's so much talent and skill here, we don't take our own market seriously. That's true. So yeah. albeit the market in Canada is small, you know, it's the size of California in, in population and it's very disparate in terms of its geography. There is still a market here. We right. still do have, if you're in tech, at least there is still, you know, connectivity through most of the country, um, you know, broadband connectivity. So that shouldn't be a limiting factor, but we don't take our own market seriously. And then we're hesitant to go across the border where there is a huge and, you know, stable market in the U.S., let alone the rest of the globe. But any, I, I've seen very similar observations about the U.S. with its, you know, it's got a huge critical mass of, of people and population mm -hmm. and markets. Mm -hmm. So people will very quickly, you know, start out in Cambridge or Boston or Silicon Valley. They'll find some population somewhere within proximity that they'll test out an offering, right? Whether it was the, you know, the, the guys at Square, um, uh, yeah, way back when or any of these new tech startups they'll figure out a way to start testing out stuff quick I was just in India for three weeks same thing with you know even one of our partners out there because the critical mass of population is so big uh, they're constantly rolling out stuff and they're right. testing it in this market and when it shows promise here then they're able to go to the next place I imagine it's similar mm -hmm. in China I, I, I think population and market size is one factor there but there's something more about being Canadian that's we've got a good idea we think it's a great idea, but we're not going to tell you it's a great idea and how awesome we are because mm -hmm. we're going to be too humble about it. So I think your observation is completely right. Well, now, and there's a kind of a side note to this that I've been observing, which is the question of marketing. So this has come up in a bunch of discussions for myself that I've had with a number of companies in the last two, three months, 
Um, everyone's starting to see the ads being pumped out through Facebook and, and elsewhere on social media for our friends at ClearBank, right? Michelle Romanoff and Andrew D'Souza, et cetera, and there are other hundred people or how many staff they have now that they've closed a bunch of money. Um, they're not doing anything specifically new. Uh, you know, the pound of flesh business has existed mm -hmm. for a long time, but the idea of kind of um, taking companies who have a proven model here uh, that can be leveraged globally or otherwise to a larger market share, win more customers simply through marketing, mm -hmm. digital marketing, is what particularly they invest in. Uh, it's that old idea of uh, revenue businesses that just need a little bit more money to turn big, bigger revenue. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and so, yeah, the couple of questions I've had from people lately is triggered by their advertising and thinking about opportunities to lever up with you know, people like ClearBank is this question of um, their timidness. They're kind of like, well, how aggressive can we be with marketing? You know, like there's people, I, I I'll, this is my Canadian moment. Okay. Mm. Like a little while ago, and I'll just shout it out for anyone who catches this. It might be an interesting little, it's not meant to be political or a stab at another company. Cause again, see, I'm being Canadian. I'm so oh my sorry God. for my opinion. See, I did that without thinking about it. But here's the thing. Okay, I saw an Just ad. Drop the monocle and which, say it. I know. Damn it. <laughs> the, the thing that really irks me, there, I'm going to be full, full frontal on this, is... Uh, <laughs> okay, it's a good thing we're not on camera. <laughs> is, uh, okay, so we're not, I, I don't believe Startwell is a co-working space. It's, it's in our marketing right now. We're changing some of it um, because we're more aligned with facilitating growth and a global scale as well for a lot of our companies. We do incubation and we have a fund, which hasn't been announced, but I just said it on the mic, uh, that will invest in some of our companies and stuff. So we're doing a lot more than just co-sharing space for, for companies. Uh, but what's interesting is when I, I did a competitive analysis recently of some uh, co-working spaces in Toronto, local brands, uh, I found one particularly, and I know the founder, I mean, I think they're, they're a great little company. They've got lots of locations. Uh, Workhouse is the name of the company. And I saw an ad that specifically was targeted against us, against Startwell. So if you search for Startwell, it would come up with an ad that says, uh, try try a better working solution instead. And it was like, you know, obviously Google has its ad guidelines, so you can't specifically in the copy of your ad call out another brand, mm. but you can target the people searching for that brand. Mm. So it was particularly, you know, snipered against our potential customers, let's call it, if that's who the people on Google are, um, to say this is better. And my immediate reaction was so Canadian. I was, I was hurt. You know, I was like, I know you, Adrian. Why would you do this to me? <laughs> <laughs> and then I kind of was like, hold on, you're being stupid. Who gives a shit, right? Because if he's not, if I, if I had an accord with the guy and he doesn't do it, there's 20 other people that are going to do it. And mm -hmm. that's advertising and that's American as well is to say, mm -hmm. Fuck the other guy, excuse my mm -hmm. language, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm doing my thing. I got to make my money. He's got to make his money. I'm going to do everything I can to make my money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I think it doesn't seem to get called out a lot in Canada. And one thing, having, you know, worked with clients in the States and Europe, um, one of the training gaps I find in organizations is actually the marketing departments. It has oh, yeah. never ceased to amaze me how little marketing departments actually know about the toolboxes. When I go and meet, like, marketing people in the states yeah senior executives in marketing teams in the u.s know their tools right they understand search they understand programmatic marketing they understand database marketing like hands-on they know the tools they understand how they work i 
I and peers of mine often discuss the fact that here, when you sit down in front of a lot of Canadian market executives, especially senior executives at large organizations, you mm -hmm. spend a lot of time educating them right. on the fundamentals. And the reality is, is that marketing strategy and concepts can, you know, um, doesn't necessarily require a lot of technical skills, but you need to know the execution. Yes. And a lot of people don't like, you know, you don't see Canadians leverage data nearly as effectively as U.S. does. You don't see um, affiliate marketing mm -hmm. uh, in any way the way the U.S. does. Right. Um, and a lot of advanced tooling, you don't see them used up here. You see a lot of organizations kind of pacified by getting their hands on a CRM and an accompanying marketing platform and basically just want to be able to push buttons going fire out campaign number one, fire campaign yeah, number two. It's all push based. Yeah, yeah, it's all old school. And also the... the, the the skill sets to uh, build programs are adaptive. I had a client once that I was doing search work for them, and there's a campaign that was knocking out of the park. And we said, "Hey, there's a lot more room in this. Google's shown us. We can see the numbers right there. It's purely quantified. You guys are leaving money on the table. We should amp up the budget." And I said, "Well, we only allocated this much budget for search this year." And they were in You're magazines, like, radio, Why are you even advertising television. at all? Yeah. Exactly. We said, "Like, why don't you pull some of that money?" And they're like, "No, we've committed that money to other other channels." That's and you hear that time all and time the time. Again. Like that, that's such a, a mindset. Whereas in the states, like yeah. their marketing teams have a culture of hustle. Right. Like wherever they can move money, they move money. Right. right. They, they and but again, it comes back to the training and learning, all the way from the most junior marketing person through to the senior executive. They know their toolbox. They know how to do stuff, and they know how to bring it all together. And that is a training gap that I find in Canada. We don't see as much. You do run into a lot of marketing people who are good idea people mm -hmm. you know what they they've got great marketing ideas and things but they have no background mm -hmm. on the tools and things and it's it's hard because it's a, it's probably one of the fastest moving toolkits in, in business but it's also necessary you got to be if you want to if you want to hustle on a global scale you need to know your marketing toolbox inside out mm -hmm. all the way up to the cmo level mm -hmm. But if you go and ask the same organization's learning and development department <laughs> around what's there in terms of supporting the employee performance, they'll say, we have a nicely packaged marketing fundamentals training program. Mm -hmm. We've trained people to do what they're supposed to do. We also have a but great course on how to use a fire extinguisher and ladder safety. Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. <laughs> right? like, so yeah. what I've realized is work happens in organizations, but it's so bits and pieces. Like there, there's an organization who will be focused on coaching. There'll be another organi same organization for focusing on onboarding experience, but they haven't connected that there are other pieces that the employee in an organization or the marketing person would need so that they can actually do the right thing. You know, like uh, if you're onboarding somebody into the organization, just shoving a pamphlet about your organization is not good enough. Mm -hmm. If they don't have the right equipment day one, that they need the toolbox that they mm. need to do their job. Mm -hmm. So all the disparate pieces of what happens to create that employee experience has to be connected. Yeah. It's not to say the work is not happening, it's just in pockets. Mm -hmm. Somebody yeah. so needs to bring it all together. So we're here back to this knowledge gap, right? Because you don't, like the people in the organization don't know what people in the organization need to know to do a better job, right? right? right. So I don't know that the marketing function in this organization is mediocre on its best day because I don't even know what the best of the best of breed tools and methodologies are in marketing for this space because I might be just comparing myself against this set of competitors in this uh, market, not looking at it more globally. So the the 
any of the teams and organizations that look at what's the best of the best happening anywhere, regardless of what country, what market that's in, and are finding ways to bring that knowledge into their organizations, they're the ones that are going to continue to succeed. Mm -hmm. And I think as, um, as it's a cultural thing too in Canada. I mean, we have the big five banks, the CEOs get together like, you know, once a month for, for lunch and they kind of agree to, here's how we're going to do business. Um, and so there's almost this uh, culture of everyone's going to kind of get the their piece. But in order to do that, if anyone is an outlier and is over competitive or hyper competitive and innovating too much, it's almost like it's disrupting everybody else. Sure. So there's this unsaid agreement here. Let's not do that. There's many markets where that's just not the case. Right. Mm -hmm. And those are the ones that we can learn from. What we're finding also from our lens at Startwell is that there are increasing amounts in the last two years, right? I mean, it, it's triggered by politics south of the border, but uh, there's increasing amount of foreign players in all sectors coming into Canada. Mm. And, and this is a market that, you know, most people in the States have ignored for decades mm -hmm. because it's so mm -hmm. small and disparate mm -hmm. and all these things. But now we're seeing it definitely in Toronto mm -hmm. um, and in tech, a lot of technology companies that are global because it's easier to hire and bring foreign mm. workers here and all this sort of stuff. Real estate even might be still, even though we think it's crazy, cheaper than, you know, San Francisco, etc. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing this. And what's really interesting is um, is there will have to be that learning curve will have to happen for uh, to maintain competitive edge, I think, for mm. some Canadian companies that are going up against these entrants. Mm. And um, and also there's this whole thing. I don't know what's going to happen with this culture uh, or this this bias that people have seemed to uh, adopt in the startup world anyway, which is, um, you know, M&A or IPO mm -hmm. is considered to be a goal yeah. or a nice outcome. And the irony is that anyone who's lived through either an M&A or an IPO knows that should be no one's choice of life. Right. That is not a good life choice. They mm -hmm. are both, you know challenging ends to a beautiful thing yeah <laughs> so yeah if you have something good you know you really have to consider um just what what it feels like to make it better for the people that enjoy it and uh and see what you need from it because i think people have this like unlimited growth kind of goal and uh, then they never reach their potential as an organization to provide value for the people who belong mm. to it. Yeah, or your or the me or your goals for success are very short term in nature. Like you're going to try and have maximum activations or members or users within the next 24 months, so you can increase the valuation for an I, uh, an IPO, yeah. as opposed to how do we actually build this from scratch to add, you know, a mutual sense of value amongst our users, right, and actually build a, a long term viable revenue model so th those are two very different things right i, I think that is and, and i think there's yeah. something inherent in you know building a business is hard we all we all know this like mm -hmm. that we, we all have our different experiences so to build a good thing you need to be willing to go over the edge for it you need to push yourself far into it if you know you're building a model home that's going to get torn down in a few months you definitely don't put the effort into that that you do if you're building your own home Right. So, and the market will know, right? Like the market mm -hmm. can tell the difference between something that's being built to flip and something that's being built to 
exist to, to have longevity and consistency um, you see product teams that are really like committed and like they love their product and you can just feel it in the, the consistency the flow from the UX all the way through to the customer service there's a there's a tightness you can't even kind of describe yeah and then you you know you run into products that are basically built to flip and it's like oh this thing's fragile it's glitchy it's uh, you know what I call customer service and I get you know a, a recording that tells me to go to the website. Like, right. It's the right you know. brand runner. I know when we answer the phone, people are thankful. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, don't be thankful. Just it's nice <laughs> to hear your voice. And then they're like, oh, you made my day. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad. We're at that point now. It's like, hello, human? Who? Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. People are so inundated with inbound horrible phone calls from, you know, Caribbean vacation Ugh. lotteries or whatever it is, this fake revenue agency mm-hmm. um that when they start again it's a canadian apology thing you start a conversation you almost feel bad for calling someone yeah anyway oh, and, <laughs> and, brain fart, but. and you know the the it, there is this kind of um uh theater of uh experience that organizations are trying to create we you know we in the last few we we've been in front of a bank several times to open up an account, right? And, and even though, you know, it's, well, it's 11 o'clock. A, I had a meeting about this with Van City, actually, about how if we can ever work together to try and change some of these experiences. Because, yeah, so I cut you off, but, like, as a new business, a new venture, you, you're not al- allowed to bank your oh, money. It's, it's brutal. And yet, at the same time, it's 11 o'clock, so at least one of the banks has at least bought another AI company today. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, there's... 15 flavors of chat bots being developed right now. And, you know, you write hundreds of people in these kind of faux startup spaces. Meanwhile, if you're a new business, you're going to spend an hour sitting in front of a office person in a cubicle as they type in your details and walk you through stuff. And then, and we had a, a horrific experience with a bank where we were migrating from our sole proprietor arrangement to an incorporation, yeah. a, a common normal move, sure. right? You would think that that experience is one of the things the banks would streamline, mm-hmm. that they should have a button on our account blinking all the time going, right. ready to incorporate? Yeah. And they had to rekey in all of our data from our small business account to our incorporated account. totally different things. And yeah, yeah, and even then they weren't able to transfer over things that they, the history, right. the rules that they've given us. And it's like, what? It's like we're you brand new to them. Yeah. Sure. And it was like, yeah. so you guys, we know you guys have spent literally millions of dollars this year buying startups and innovation, creating innovation cultures, hiring unlimited directors of innovation of this and that. Yet this thing, this day to day, is so brutally flawed and again it's that notion of the if this is your company you and this is you're building a thing to grow you would you would see that pain you would feel your customers pain you'd hear their phone call try to fix it you would fix that long before and and that i think is the the difference is that you're right like there is this kind of um cult of exit in canada but but even taking that lens back on on enterprise i think it's very interesting to consider this right um or maybe it's just a rephrasing what we've been talking about for an hour, but um, let's say Bank X employs 50,000 people mm. and, uh, and really 40,000 of them don't need to be employed, <laughs> in, right? Because they're all stamp, stamp, pass. But no one wants to tip the boat because that would be chaos and entropy for uh, the stock price of Bank X because mm. it's a public company. 
Mm-hmm. So it just keeps going. And then innovation is great. And they're investing in innovation. They're investing in learning and, and enabling their staff to learn things. But they can't push the fold too much to empower them to say, I've learned so much, I want change. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Right? Because that massive rush towards change questions the employment model. You can't have 40,000, or this is conventionalism, can't have 40,000 people all doing what Google does, which is take a third of your time or whatever it is and create something new. It's going to be owned by Google, but go have fun. Go have fun on Friday. <laughs> they should all do that. <laughs> and the bank would be immediately amazing, right? Or it would be moving towards that culture if they said, okay, all these human resources that we kind of like, eh, secret, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, could fire if we were allowed to, mm-hmm. instead could be turned around, re-educated and enabled the bank could be yeah. something completely different. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, you've hit like on like th- this. This tsunami is yeah. coming. Like between automation, increased globalization, more um, offshoring of back office functions, um, more and more people are going to be out of work or doing less meaningful work. If we can consider some of that work meaningful tomorrow than they are today, yeah. because um, the world is just changing. Right? Like you might not need forty thousand of those fifty thousand people and the ten thousand that are left are doing super high skill um very like they're from a cognitive and cerebral standpoint they're very intense um functions that you'd need to have a phd or a master's to even execute right. in a whole bunch of history but now we are going in a direction where many people will be out of work and now they'll need something else to do but they'll yeah. need to have the skills to be able to do that right so part of what we're thinking about is not just how do we educate people in the enterprise today and make that better? But because um, most people are struggling with how much work sucks. I mean, that's mm-hmm. actually like mm-hmm. one of the that's first videos that we topic. put together. Yeah. Work sucks and it's anxiety for people, mm-hmm. right? It, it creates stress. People go home and then either they, they take it out on their families or they drink. So like society as a whole suffers because work sucks and work and sucks. work is the majority of your waking life. Yeah, right? and, yeah. and work sucks in yeah. part because... This is what we inflex here. Yeah, yeah, totally. Work sucks in part because, I mean, there's culture and and all of those things at at play, but oftentimes your boss doesn't even know what you do or your boss doesn't know what he or she needs to to be able to do to be a good leader or you don't have the information you need to make this decision that you're being asked to make by nine o'clock tomorrow morning. So all these things kind of create anxiety. And part of that is because there's constantly a knowledge gap about, you know, the information I need, the people uh, at play. But the world is going to change. I think in our lifetime, in our kids' Mm -hmm. lifetime, is going to change a lot. So we need to get ahead of that. Um, And that's partly where I think us orienting around how we can help people and help organizations help their people learn better, quicker, more responsibly is a big piece there because we can't continue to keep doing things the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you think about it, the uh, when I've tried to explain to people, you know, kind of what it is we do, I say everyone can relate to that moment where you're standing in front of you worked to, have worked in a company, mm. you're standing in front of the photocopier, there's no toner in it. That moment is super stressful, and when you think about all the things someone has to do at that moment, uh, they either have to rely on social learning, they have to mm-hmm. find someone going, well, where is the toner? Uh, how do I change the toner? Do I call IT? Uh, what's my relationship with the power structure around me? Like, there's people in desks. Do I know them? Do I not know them? Am I allowed to talk to them? Should I go talk to my boss? No, my boss is going to think I'm an idiot because I don't mm-hmm. know how to change the toner, but I don't know who has the toner. What is the toner? You think of that micro moment because it's so, super relatable, 
And it's it's a combination of knowledge gaps on a number of levels. Mm -hmm. And and that problem started long before the toner ran out. And yet it's it's a micro and multiply that by, you know, thousands of moments, hundreds of thousands, but not millions of employees across the country, mm -hmm. and you think about how much energy is lost mm -hmm. in that simple task. The reality is the that piece of information, quantitatively, is probably two or three sentences mm -hmm. of information. The toner is in the closet in the corner. The manual for it is under the thing or something, you know, like, or the internet and, and, and the FAQ is there. But that teeny little knowledge gap has this impact. And if that person loses an hour or two in that day, they, that hits them hard. Like they're mm -hmm. like, now I didn't do this thing. Now I'm late on this report. I go home. I take it out on my family. This compounds other things. And if you, if that photocopier event is one of a dozen crises that have mm -hmm. happened because of knowledge gaps in a day, that just ripples on through. And, and it's such a simple little thing, but you know, the so little attention is paid to what the mental health and social mm -hmm. impacts are. Of as you said, we spend most of our living lives in our workspace, and yet we tend we take so little care. Mm -hmm. Of people in our workspace, yeah, and when we walk by printers, Martin usually uses his <laughs> shit. Now. Yeah, just kicks. Oh, I them. carry a hammer. I just hit them now. I don't even <laughs> use them. I just no, smash it, them to pieces. Well, this, yeah. this is such a beautiful example, though. Like I'm just building onto where you were going with this, Martin. You triggered an emotional reaction in that person because they could not get what they were looking for in time. So you actually clouded their mind to be receptive to all the learning moments that they would have had throughout the day. Yet that same company would have invested millions of dollars packaging content as a learning experience mm -hmm. to support that employee. So that's it's coming back to the neuroscience of learning, sure. yeah. the, how to get the brain ready mm -hmm. and receptive to learn through peers, through social interactions, right. through experiencing the day-to-day -day life when they're in the work context yeah. or outside it. Yeah, and the, the irony is, is that photocopier has more technology and capability than any Apollo rocket ever did, right? Like mm -hmm. it's a sophisticated, super complicated device that is the technological product of years of engineering, mm -hmm. design, development. And yet you're right, like that little gap of knowledge creates this flow there. And, mm -hmm. the, and, and not just short term, but you know, and if they can't find the IT person, their relationship with the organization gets hit. You know, right. as they often say in relationships, you know, people rarely break up over an issue. It's a thousand little yeah. issues that culminate in an opinion. Right. And if if that photocopier moment compounds a thousand other things, you're going to lose that talent. You lose that person and move on. Mm -hmm. And yet your organizations spend millions of dollars on retention strategies. Yeah. Right. Where it's like, again, ice cream on Friday, uh, open office, uh, foosball tables. <laughs> Meanwhile, because no one seems to know how to get toner for the photocopier yeah. they lose their mind and eventually like i'm yeah. out of here so so message to all fortune 500s if you want to increase your earnings per share this quarter like put your toner right beside the printer <laughs> yeah seriously like or just get rid of photocopiers what was when when are we getting the paperless office i'm still I know. waiting for you that. need a piece of paper to make a copy of it yeah on a piece of paper i literally remember seeing brochures like in high school in that would have been in the 80s about the future is paperless. Yeah. Like, really? How's it going? Honestly, people print. We have unlimited printing uh, for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> Starwell. And they, people use it. Yeah. They use yeah. it. They use it like crazy. Wow. And uh, most of it's throwaway print. Like, oh. people don't print for a reason. They print because they feel they have to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the time. It's really interesting to watch. And I have definitely seen those moments oh. where people yeah. just lose it. Just completely lose it. And it's, it's the printer. It's always, it's always like printer. Yeah. And, but it's a printer, photocopy, like, yeah, it's actually, simple you know tools. I'll say this. I've seen it a few times with just a couple of people. 
Okay, out of the 500 odd people that operate in this campus regularly, it was only a couple people, and those are the same people, very few. It's a great ratio for success for us and what we're doing with our population, but uh, only those couple people are the people that wouldn't ask anyone around them mm. to help them. Because mm -hmm. we have this collaborative culture here, everyone helps each other. Because mm -hmm. I, I can't staff this place. Like, if imagine this was a 500 person company. How many people would my team be? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but we can't afford to staff it that way because our business is not. And that speaks exactly to the pro the thing that uh, the training, because again, that the training isn't, you know, making sure there's a manual. Obviously, there's a manual somewhere mm -hmm. for that photocopier. It's that level of training. And as per your example, if an organization doesn't train and encourage the leadership down, collaboration, right. it can't be agile. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly the case you just illustrated there. Like if you have to staff up, to bridge knowledge gaps, you can't be efficient because you've got all this kind of extra overhead of basically just knowledge Sherpas uh, filling in the gap for mm -hmm. an actual strategy of how to make we've, sure everybody knows what they need to know. We've played this um, really interestingly uh, here at this campus where uh, before I had complimentary barista service at our reception, um, before it was officially complimentary and it was just one day a week that we'd have a barista here making drinks for uh, for free for our members people would go to whoever was at the front desk to solve problems and it's really interesting they would go to them more often than not to solve some problem that they could have solved themselves or ask for help from anyone else in the population as soon as we flip that upside down mm. and only have concierge in the morning at the desk and have barista full day Monday to Friday complimentary barista drinks um, people will go get what they need to calm themselves a tea a sparkling water a cappuccino take a moment think about what their problem is not even express what their problem is to anyone behind the desk and go and solve it mm -hmm. or go back to someone that's near and talk about it and socialize mm -hmm. the experience that they're going through and that that that's i think what it is is you need these cues to help people be able to feel social in an environment mm -hmm. um, where you know fear and anxiety and I can't lose my job I just had mm -hmm. a new baby all that plays up in mm -hmm. people's mind yeah well I'm mean, think think about what you're what you're doing there you've created I mean you, ha you have a building you've created a certain physical vibe and the space flows a certain way you've got your your you know kind of barista and, and desk at the front there's a lot of light so if people are working in one space and you need to kind of change your thinking or you right. need to challenge an idea, you're going to move physically. That's just something that we like to do. Right. So you're going to move there. You might run an idea by somebody. But you're creating almost these these pockets within the infrastructure where someone can change their perspective on something or engage with somebody. Mm -hmm. And that's a very physical thing. And interior designers and architects and whatnot have been doing that and thinking about that for a long time. We're trying to think about that from your sort of your cultural infrastructure and architecture standpoint right? right so you might be in two different offices um and the solution might not be here's one hour of e-learning and a 50 page pdf on how to solve your problem it might be that you're able to connect person a with someone in the organization who's dealt with that specific mm -hmm. thing if i don't know how to build uh pivot tables or i don't know how to run this particular function in this in this application i could spend a whole bunch of time learning about that from some e-learning course that i could find or if you if I could quickly within the organization run a search for who knows something about this right mm -hmm. and pull up that person and then culturally if you have an organization focused around when someone has a question if you've got time available 
entertain them you know mm -hmm. give them that two or three minutes mm -hmm. now i might have saved half a day of frustration i've connected with somebody i didn't know i've shared a problem i've learned something from them so in all of that you've learned something technical you've built something culturally mm -hmm. um and it's kind of uh, it, metaphorically what you're talking about here right mm -hmm. with you kind of going and sharing a problem or even just being in a new space so the problem of learning is not just the content mm -hmm. it's not just the technology it's the the culture being oriented around creating that sharing environment of osmosis and and transparency and whatnot and these are things that uh some organizations do better than others but even i mean i would humbly argue even the best uh still have a long way to go because I, I, personally i find the best way to learn is amongst a group of people we are you know, by by evolution we are social creatures right um and you can't always have you know, four people sitting around a table, mm -hmm. but there are proxies for this that technology now allows. Mm -hmm. But in order to empower those technologies, you need to have a culture that's focused on it. So you can't say, mm -hmm. it's a waste of time to reach out to this senior developer about this question. You might've taken two minutes of that senior developer's time, but you might've saved yourself four hours. And if both of you guys feel better about that, now that's a cultural win, you feel better about mm -hmm. your day and the organization is overall much more efficient. Mm -hmm. But that takes a much, more global view instead of the myopy that many organizations have on this. Yeah, when you think about it, all knowledge is fundamentally a social act. For, me to, for you to read an article, I need to make a social decision that I'm going to put a thought on a piece of paper and mm. put it out there. So it's, you know, knowledge is not a technical act, it's, it is a social act. And therefore, in an organization, all knowledge is political. Uh, and the key is if you've got a good culture, you can depoliticize knowledge. Um, but if you have a culture that politicizes knowledge, then you slow it down right and if you slow knowledge down an organization you slow the organization down so it is super cultural it's social uh, the social the social matrix by which knowledge moves through an organization will determine the effectiveness of that organization yeah here's i mean here's a very specific and, and kind of in progress example right now so one of our clients um had made an investment in in a new learning experience delivery platform so it's kind of a new class of uh, learning uh, technologies that's netflix esque in that regardless of where the content lives it's unboxed it, you can serve it up through a single experience layer and you can track analytics around it sure instead of driving people into a learning management system and they have to be in the system logged in yeah. and only consume content there so there's a class of these um, platforms that are out there and many enterprises are using you know these types of platforms so they buy the platform they think this is going to solve everything mm -hmm. well the, the the that's actually only the beginning you need to now think about how are you going to break your content up to serve it through this interface in a way that's actually meaningful right so one of the things that that, that shweta quite brilliantly is, has done is she's working with one of our clients that's purchased one of these platforms helping them to think about you know you shouldn't have 10 or 15 minutes or 20 minutes of content at a time in one block for this program it really makes more sense to break this into smaller pieces of you know two to three minutes because when people want to learn about something they're actually trying to answer a very specific question mm -hmm. i need to know how to do this or what's our policy on that mm -hmm. i don't want to sit through 20 minutes of this because i've got shit to do right so what she's been able to do here is say if this is your platform from a content structure standpoint here's how you should structure it this is how to best actually display it in that particular platform so now um it's bringing together the worlds of the learning technology, the learning content strategy, 
and then the experience side, right? Which is the thing that's actually probably most sorely lacking in the learning world. No one's really thinking about the experience of it. Right. They're just thinking, I've got something right. really important to say and I'm going to tell you that. Right. Right. Exactly. And you could have... This uh, is about necessity. And yeah. It's also yeah. about kind of like, yeah, like you started with stretch, like saying you digest this and then you've done it. You know, it, this idea of kind of linear narrative mm -hmm. and... Uh, and, and yeah, it's, it's not taking yeah, context. It's also kind of account. presumptuous and I, I think quite frankly arrogant of anyone or an organization to think because I think this is important, you will learn this, right? right? right. So that it doesn't necessarily work that way. You could be a, a you could have seven PhDs behind you and have the most important stuff, but if the way you teach is completely boring and people are falling mm -hmm. asleep, they didn't see value in it. They didn't see either they didn't see value in what you were teaching or they didn't find the way that you were teaching it to resonate with them. So yeah. you need to rectify both of those. I know I'll say this on our team, it's a very small team, but I, I encourage everyone to break everything <laughs> and then I'll help them fix it, you know? Mm. But it's like giving the keys to the kingdom to say, mm. but you have to turn you have to turn them in the lock, you know, mm. by all means and mm -hmm. walk through that door. Because um, then, and that takes encouragement and coaching and all these other things we've been talking about. Because there's a lot of fear that people have about taking ownership as well, right? Whether it's ownership for their own uh, career destiny, their success within an organization. The majority of people in enterprise don't want to rock a boat, and they just want to clock in and out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, very. You guys have, have definitely chosen a very difficult. Uh, <laughs> not a difficult. I'd say a, a really. I'm sure rewarding career path with this uh, with this uh, consulting company. Yeah, I know. It's uh, it's been a fun ride, and there's there's a, a lot more to come. Anything particular you're looking for that um, that that uh, our listeners could resonate with? Are you uh, hiring? Are you looking for experts to partner with in any fields? I think that one is probably yeah. expert because mm -hmm. what realize as you can imagine, this is a really multidisciplinary space. Um, so we a few weeks ago we were down by Southwest Southwest DDU, and it just reminded us how broad a brain space there is in this area of learning science. Um, so if there are people out there that are academics, they are consultants who are writing, talking, exploring the cultural aspects, the technical aspects, the, you know, the, particularly the analytical aspects, because yeah. that's, you know, still a blind spot. We're always excited to hear about that stuff. Yeah. We're, uh, we're pretty big on network. So like we've, I mean, we've spun up actually a couple of really great workshops here at Startwell with people within our networks for creative ideation and brainstorming and design thinking and whatnot. So if a specific problem requires, uh, you know, a, a, a digital strategist and a creative designer and a, and, a, and a really sort of clever copywriter to come together around a specific problem or opportunity, like we've been able to reach out within our networks to spin up those types of skill sets. So I would say anyone listening to this who has um, who, if you've heard this and something here has resonated with you, we're always happy to talk. Uh, mm -hmm. We also, shameful plug here, we're, uh, we have the Knowledge Stack podcast, which is uh, Yen's S3's podcast, which is um, a little, little bit behind this one in terms of the number of episodes, but it's starting to build up momentum as well. So we are sponges for learning. Mm -hmm. We try to learn as much as we can. So if, uh, if you found this interesting, then we're happy to nerd out. And they can find your podcast where on iTunes. I'm guessing. Yeah, it's on it's on iTunes. Um, so the website is uh, yenza three dot com. That's yenza and the number three dot com. Of course, then, yenza is spelled Y E N Z A. Correct. Yes. Yes. I should, should spell <laughs> You're like it's just spelled yenza. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's got like a silent Q and a flashing P in there. No, no, it's uh, it's totally phonetic. 
Um, so yenzi3.com and you'll find the Knowledge Stack podcast uh, there as well. And we've uh, we've got a lot to say, clearly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. guests. <laughs> it's not just us. We have a whole world of friends. No, I think you three <laughs> could carry carry on multitudes of episodes solo. Anyway, <laughs> so it's great. You know, the conversation's got to be interesting yeah. each time. Yeah. Well, thank you for, yeah, for having thanks. us here. Absolute pleasure. Awesome. Uh, it is always a pleasure to sit down and chat, and it's nice to take the time to do it and share the conversation. Mm-hmm. So if any of our listeners have anything to say about our conversation, want to reach out to any of us on the microphone, um, the contact, I guess, for you guys is through your website, just mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. com, and, of course, startwell.co. If you want to uh, contact us here at Startwell or just walk in Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, um, at 786 King Street West in downtown Toronto. And if you're looking to buy a monocle, uh, we have a referral code for Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you.